Hi, my name's Taylor Chapman, and I want to welcome you to today's broadcast. Let's actually jump right on in there, and let's see what God has in store for you with today's message. But today, we're going to look like what that scene, the nativity scene, what it really looked like. You have the picture of kind of what we have on the screen. You've got a, not that one, not that one, don't do that. The, the, that little barn looking thing and you have the three wise men coming up, there's baby G, that, that's like a picture of the typical nativity. Whenever you think of nativity, is that what you think of? Of course it is, because that is what the nativity scene is all about. But I wanna talk to you a little bit about today from what it actually looked like. It, it looked a little bit different than what we see, and I want to show you what that is. Um, let's look inside your notes. Uh, let's read Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Go. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. When we look at those last two words, the inn. It comes from a Greek word, kataluma. Can you say kataluma? It's kind of fun. You guys can speak Greek. Did you know that? Kataluma. You guys are now Greek proficientados. Kataluma. Um, and the interesting thing about uh, what this looks like is the, the inn is typically portrayed in movies, in stories, in nativities, uh, as being an inn as in a hotel. Is that how you relate the word in as a hotel? The, the word Cataluma is actually translated a little bit differently than a hotel, and I want to show you why. Uh, the same word, Cataluma, is used just a few chapters later in Luke 22, as well as in Mark 14, and both of these writers use the word Cataluma when describing the location of where the Last Supper was taking place. The, the Last Supper was not in a, a hotel. It wasn't in an inn. The word Cataluma in Luke is translated as the guest room. So in the Bible, Jewish families were all about family. Super important. When they built their homes or their homes, their homes were being built, they had a room upstairs, and that room upstairs was known as the guest room, or in some vernaculars, the upper room. Uh, in this room, traveling mem family members would come by and stay with them. In this room, they would have parties. In this room, it, they, they would put storage and store stuff. Um, it, it's kind of like the modern day uh, bonus room. You know how like some houses have the bonus room upstairs? Kind of like that is the, is the idea behind this. Uh, but when you look at the, the usage of the Greek word and how it's used in the sentence, what it actually means in Luke is there's no place for them in the Cataluma. So we can actually read it this way. Let's reread Luke 2.7, but I'll take care of it. Uh, they wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a, in a manger because there was no room in the guest room. We have this idea that Joseph and Mary went to a hotel and there was no room in the inn, so they were cast away. We read that Jesus was born in a manger, so that means he couldn't have been born in a hotel. It means he would have been born in a barn. But in all reality, it's actually pretty easy to get the two mixed up when you look at the culture of what was taking place. Bethlehem uh, was only about 150 people. 
Not a very big community. Like, that's, that's pretty small. Um, but whenever you look at the nativity scene, you look at the hotel, you look at the barn, you look at everything there, it's real easy to get mixed up. And in our society today, where do we keep animals at? Out in the barn. We don't keep them in the house. We keep them out in the barn. Where, do you, anybody have a feed trough in your house? No, where do you keep a feed trough at? In a barn. So you would think if you see a feed trough, a manger, a barn, you see animals around, that they would be out in a barn. So that's where you see the nativity, out in a barn. That, that kind of makes sense though, doesn't it? Like if you see animals, you see the, a, food, a feed trough, it's out in the barn. But I, I wanna show you where Jesus was more than likely born. It may be a little bit uh, a shocker to you, Travis, wouldn't mind, throw up that next slide. I wanna show you here a picture of what a typical Bethlehem house would have looked like and explain it to you. When Mary and Joseph were traveling to Bethlehem, this would have been the typical house that they would have stayed at. The top floor was the primary residence. Uh, this is where life was lived. We could call it like a family room today. Um, on the top floor would also have a room included that would be the guest, I'm taking this thing off. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it, guys. I can't do it. Don't get crazy. All right. Okay, we're doing this too. Is it hot in here? Because I'm like sweating. I think I'm about to pass out. I'm not taking anything else off, all right? The, uh... uh oh, I messed up. The, the story unfolds that Joseph and Mary went to a house much like this picture. And at the time, there was a, a census taking place. And, and in the guest room, they would have been in that top right picture. Do you see like there's a little wall and there's a little, looks like a little bed or something in there. That would have been known as the, the guest room. And whenever you would have family come and stay, this is where they would stay. And you got to remember back then they didn't have cell phones. Like they didn't tell everybody like, Hey, I'm going to be there on Thursday at four o'clock. Like they just randomly showed up and you're like, Hey, join the party. And so they always made room for you to come and, and stay and hang out. And so extended family would just show up at random times. So let's keep looking at the picture. When you look at the bottom part of the picture, that bottom floor, this is where the most valuable animals in the, in the, uh, uh, that they owned would be kept, especially in inclement weather. So picture this, you have a bottom floor, and today we walk up like 13 steps and we get to our second floor. They had a bottom floor and you see the ladder, it's a little off on the dimensions. It would have been about four to five feet higher would be the second floor. The reason why is because they would keep the prized animals in the bottom and they didn't want the goats and the chicken all jumping up to where the primary residence where they lived was at. So they would make it just high enough so that they could go up on the ladder to get to the primary residence, but the animals couldn't get to where they were at. Are you following where I'm at? 
So in the mornings, it would be the responsibility of the women and children to take the animals outside, clean the floors, get all the straw taken out, uh, and kind of bring get everything back ready for the animals to come back in that night. They didn't have grocery stores. They didn't have markets. They didn't have all this other stuff. Uh, They would only have the resources for what their family needed. So again, looking back in the culture of the day, it was common for the culture to have a family room and everyone slept in the family room. There wasn't privacy like we enjoy today where we all have our own rooms and all. The family room was where life happened. And then they had the guest room that would have a door between it and that would be so extended family could come and they could do whatever they wanted to do. Um, Does that that make sense? We're, We're following where we're at. So Mary and Joseph, more than likely on whenever they were going to Bethlehem because of the census that was taking place, would have gone to a relative's home. Joseph had family who lived in Bethlehem. So they would have gone to the relative's home, and whenever he knocked on the door, the relative would have said, I already have family in the guest room. There's no room in the Cataluma. How would you like to be that uncle? The uncle that kicked out Jesus from being born inside the house. Like, you would never live that down. So Jesus, or so Mary and Joseph go to their family member's house. They knock on the door and say, hey, do you have a place available to me? And they said, there's no room here for you to stay. So what would have happened is the family would have stayed in the living room. You can leave that picture up. Would have stayed in that living room. And then when it came time for the baby to be born, they don't want to get that floor where all the family life, I don't know if anybody have ever been through having a baby, but it's not clean. You don't want a bunch of people all around you doing your thing. So where would they have taken Mary to have this baby? Down the four steps, four stairs, and Jesus would have been born where they keep the animals, like a barn, because that's where they kept the animals. But I'm going to show you later that they, we actually know the time when Jesus is born. So what happened was the, the, the mother, the women, the children, they'd already had everything cleaned out. So when Mary came, everything was ready for them. It was all prepared for them. They had no idea that Jesus was going to be born. It's Pretty cool. We're going to get into some fun stuff. So whenever you look at Jesus being born, he wasn't born in a barn, but he kind of was. He was born where the animals were kept, but Jesus was born in a house. If he was really rich, if the family members would have been really rich, they might have had a house that had a cave in the back of it where they could store stuff. And so there is some theory because Joseph actually comes from money that his family members would have had money and they could have been born that way. But it's more than likely excavators. They actually have this house in Bethlehem where they have excavated and it looks just like that, proving that this is where they think that Jesus was born in a house. So that's kind of the first scene of the nativity. Does that make sense? So we all clear on where Jesus was born. He, 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 he wasn't born in a manger. He was born in the feed trough that was already cleaned out for the day because the animals would have already been taken out and cleaned. And so it wasn't like a special manger that was built just for him. It was 
where their prized animals would have eaten out of the day before. The, the second scene in the nativity is the wise men. Anybody a fan of home improvement? Okay, so Tim Taylor, he, he's in a Christmas episode. He calls them the three wise tool guys. <laughs> okay, um, there's three wise men, um, but how many were there really? Does anybody know? Nope. This is just making up a random number. That's <laughs> not going to work. So good idea, though. I mean, seven is a perfect number, so I guess it would kind of make sense. Um, the Bible tells us that we know that there were at least two. Most people think because there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh given, there was three. But more than likely, there actually would have been 12. Because, here's why, there was 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, 12 is the number of authority, 12 gates in the, are mentioned in Revelations, 12 is the cosmic order which, was to, which the wise men who were astronomers would have operated out of. So they would have brought 12 of them to go in line with cosmic order. So it's not a guarantee, but we, we believe that there are 12 of them. Uh, we, we also know for certain that they were not there the, the night or the first three nights that Jesus was born. We have this idea because they're all pictured around the baby Jesus. Um, the, the Bible tells us in Matthew 2, the wise men went to Herod and said, there is a star which has been seen in the east that stood over the young child. Um, so they know, therefore, there was was not, they, they were not there at the time that Jesus was a baby, and, and the wise men traveled approximately seven to 900 miles by camel, by walking, to come and see this Jesus that was born. Uh, the Bible says that they traveled from the east. We don't know how long it took them, because at the time, they don't know if there were roads that were closed, uh, if there were wars, battles, things going on, they would have rerouted them. But they do know that's why we have approximately between seven and 900 miles they would have walked to come and see Jesus. And we believe uh, that Jesus would have been around two years old when they got there. I'm not going to tell you why, but I will give you the hint, and you can go look it up. The wise men went to Herod and said something to him. There's a king that is born, and Herod said to take care of something that is two years and younger. There's children in here. I'm going to leave it at that. Does that make sense? So that is why we believe that Jesus was about two years old. So he wasn't a baby. He was a toddler, and that is all I'm going to say about that with kids in the room. Are we all clear on that one? Okay. <laughs> Uh, the third aspect of the nativity we're going to look at is the baby Jesus. When was Jesus born, and did anything significant happen the day he was born? I mean, the Son of God's born. Don't you think something big's going to happen? I mean, you sure would think so, but I don't know. Jesus was born on September 11, 3 B.C. You can always remember that because September 11th when the towers were hit. Now you can remember, oh, September 11th, uh, Jesus was born. On 3 B.C., astronomers believe that it was between 6.15 p.m. and 7.45 p.m. How many of you girls want to think an hour and a half labor is not too bad? <laughs> no, that's not so bad. Like, hey, I can't. They believe that Mary was in labor for an hour and a half between 6.15 and 7.45. And I'm going to show you why. Revelation 12 describes a constellation of stars that took place at a certain time. And history says that it happened for an hour and a half over Bethlehem. The stars in the sky begin to adjust. It had never happened before. It has never happened since. 
They actually go back to the Stellarium Astronomy database and it says, we can prove without a shadow of a doubt a different formation for a period of one hour and a half above Bethlehem took place and it is exactly described as in uh, Revelations chapter 12, which in your notes says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Science has proven that Revelation 12.1 happened on September 11th, 3 BC at 6.15. The stars all changed and 12 stars pointed at the woman, the woman representing man, the 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 uh, things of Revelations, the 12 gates of Revelation, all of it points towards Jesus being born and they had no idea who was born in the midst of them. But here's the cool thing. Did something significant happen on that day? This is cool. <laughs> on the day Jesus was born, September 11th, was a start, what they call the Feast of Trumpets, which is known as, if any of you know how to say this better than I do, just forgive me, Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. Uh, which was the feast associated with the Messiah and his return. The Feast of Trumpets called for a national repentance and also marked the start of a new agricultural year. The blast of the shofar would be the announcement of the beginning of the feast. The blast would have happened about the time Jesus was born. They would have blasted a shofar around 6 o'clock that night. Fifteen minutes later, Mary's in labor. After Rosh Hashanah would have followed Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year for the Israelites. It is the day the high priest would have entered into the Holy of Holies and offered a sacrifice for the sin of their nation. Remember, we're Old Testament law, not New Testament grace. They would actually have tied a rope to the priest's legs just in case if he would have died while being in the presence of Almighty, no one else could have got in there. They would have dragged him back out of the temple. As soon as Yom Kippur would have ended, there was another celebration called Sikut. The celebration was all about celebrating the deliverance of God's chosen people out of Egypt. Let me summarize this. On the day Jesus was born, the festivities of trumpets that called for repentance and an agricultural fresh start started. Followed by the day of atonement, which seeks sinful redemption in Yom Kippur, followed by Sukkot, which celebrates the fulfillment of God's redemption. Let me tie all this in in plain English for you. God is showing us on the birth date of Jesus, I have sent a baby who you will call you to repentance and give you a fresh start because I have redeemed the people from the curse of the law of Egypt that, might, that they would walk in the fullness of what God has for them in his redemption. All of that started the day Jesus was born. So whenever you look at the nativity scene, it's not just a baby born in a manger. It was the start of a celebration of your Messiah to come to save you from eternity, the most significant day of the year. If that day wouldn't have happened, none of us would be here. 
Uh, Larry King was one time interviewed and said, if you could interview anybody, who would you interview? You know Larry King? Am I dating myself here? Okay, we all know Larry King. He was always the one doing the interviewing, but he was being interviewed, and he said, if I could interview Jesus Christ, that would be the one person I would interview. And, they, and, and the person asked, why would you interview Jesus Christ? He said, because if Jesus Christ truly was virgin-born, everything else changes. If Jesus was truly born a virgin, that changes everything. The birth of Jesus is the defining event in human history. The virgin birth of Jesus points beyond the birth itself. It speaks to the nature of what is to come with this baby, meaning if Jesus is virgin born, there is something supernatural taking place in this child. This is what is known as Christology, which means it is the nature of who Jesus is, both God and man. There are two major aspects of Christology. Let's look in your notes and let's fill some blanks out here. The first aspect of Christology is the person of Christ. This is asking who is Jesus Christ. This is known as the doctrine of incarnation, which I'll explain. And then we have the second aspect of Christology, number two, is the work of Christ. This is asking, what did Jesus do? This is the doctrine of atonement. So we have the person of Christ, we have the work of Christ. As we approach Christmas tomorrow, the day we remember as Jesus Christ coming to earth as a baby, this is known as the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I want to explain what that is. Here's, here's how you define incarnation. It's really simple. Write down in your notes, definition, incarnation, in faith, in flesh. Ha, just kidding. In flesh. Incarnation simply means in flesh. So when we look at the incarnation of Jesus, it means God becoming flesh or God becoming man. The Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, as Devin reads, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The scripture points to the manner in which Jesus will be born. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born. In this scripture, he is given the name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This is pointing to the fact that, that this baby that will be born has both human nature and divine nature. There are 27 prophecies in the Old Testament which are fulfilled at the birth of Jesus Christ. These prophecies are given hundreds if not thousands of years before Jesus is ever born. And one of the most significant aspects of the Bible I wanna to talk to you about right now comes out of Genesis 3. Pretty early in the Bible is Genesis 3. You can't get, get much closer to the beginning than that. Let's read this. The Lord is speaking to the serpent, the devil, and he says this in your notes, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Let me explain this a little bit, okay? In verse 14, God cursed the serpent, and he actually talks about how Satan is going to be more cursed than any other animal, referring Satan to be animal-like. But in verse 15, he switches from comparing the curse to other animals to speaking directly to the devil himself. This verse is known as the protevangelium. I put that one in your notes. This is going to be a fun one. Meaning, write this down, 
the first gospel. The first gospel of who Jesus is comes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It predicts the perpetual hostility between Satan and the woman, which is in the text, the woman is representing all of mankind. Look at that scripture. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is telling Satan what is going to happen to him. He doesn't tell him when it's going to happen. God is just getting Satan to start running scared. This, this is so cool. The woman's seed would bruise the devil's head. The text actually translates meaning the woman's seed would annihilate and crush the devil's head. So Satan would bruise the Messiah's heel. The wound here speaking of suffering and even death, but not, not uh, ultimate defeat. So look back at the verse. Between thy seed and her seed. This is the first place we hear God suggesting a man will be born of a woman. On the 15th verse of Genesis 3, God is already showing us he is going to send a son, and that son will be born of a woman, and that son will completely crush Satan. Let's fast forward, look at the New Testament. There are four books that are called the Gospels. The first three are known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These three books are very similar and share common stories of the life and ministry of Jesus. The fourth Gospel, which is written by John, is, uh, is not so much the stories of Jesus. It's not so much the earthly ministry. It's about the divine nature of who Jesus is. This is the work of Jesus, what is known as his atonement. So let's fill out that last blank. The divine atonement means to suffer the penalty of sin, which means Jesus paid the penalty of our sin and only through Jesus we are saved. We are shown in our notes in John chapter 20. If you would read verse 30, please. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When you look at the four gospels, each of them trace the lineage of Jesus. Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham. Mark only goes back to John the Baptist, which isn't very far at all. That's, he and Jesus were friends. Luke goes back to David, which we just did a study on David, one chapter, six weeks, good study. You guys should go back and listen to it. Uh, when John talks, he talks about the lineage of Jesus all the way back to the beginning of eternity. And he says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, God made the heavens and the earth. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the earth, waiting for instruction from Jesus to do something. Jesus was with God, and through the voice of Jesus, his word created all things. When he spoke, the Holy Spirit moved. So in that context, let's read John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, meaning Jesus was there at the beginning of existence. The word was with God, meaning Jesus was next to God. And the word was God, meaning the voice of Jesus is the word. I want to get into some deep theology. I know it's Christmas Eve. We shouldn't be deep theology, but you guys are, you guys are Greek theologians. You guys can speak Greek. So um, I'm going to do my best to simplify this. But whatever word Jesus says carries the weight of God, and it cannot not work. The words of Jesus are absolute. Or I can say it this way. Jesus is the physical manifestation of God. Understand this. Just as spoken word is the physical manifestation of your thoughts. 
kind of makes sense when you say it that way, huh? Jesus is the word because he was the means through which the Father brought all physical reality into existence. Jesus is the one who represents the Father's invisible nature and character to all creation. We talked about it a little bit in our Kingdom Come series. Heaven is a real place. The earth is a real place. Our goal is on earth is to get the realities of heaven to manifest on earth. Jesus is the physical manifestation of a supernatural reality, meaning it is through Jesus God would transfer what heaven has to offer into the natural realm. Are you following me? Why would God need to send Jesus to earth? Hebrews 5.19 in your notes. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh, and the word was a dwelling among us. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, it brought sin to the earth. And the only way to right or wrong is for someone to pay the sacrifice for what the wrong that brought, was brought in. There needed to be what we call a covenant keeper. One who could live a life none of us could. One who knew no sin. And I will explain that more in a moment. So when Jesus Christ came down, he came to be like us. Let's read in Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every, in every respect in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things related to God to make atonement, penalty for sin, and propitiation satisfy God's wrath for the people's sins. The Apostle Paul shows us in the New Testament the only way we can be saved is someone to pay the atonement for what that sin brings in. God sent his son to die on the cross to be the sacrifice of sin so that you don't have to live apart from God. But there's a problem with that. The holiness of who God is cannot be in the same location as the sinful nature of who we are. So there had to be someone who would be the, what we call the covenant keeper, the middle man who could pay the price for our sin, but yet knew no sin. Does that make sense? Do my hand motions seem to make sense? To, it makes sense to me when I say this. We sin down here, God's here, Jesus here, man here. We sin here, we don't have access to God on our own because of our sinful nature. So Jesus had to come and pay the price of what that sinful nature looked like and carry the sin so that way our access would not be directly to God. It would be to Jesus or through Jesus to God. Are you following me? Amen. I'm trying to simplify this as much as I can. And the, the, the only way that could be done is someone who didn't sin because he still had to have access to the presence of God. He still had to be in the holiness of who God was, and sin can't be there. So 
if you can't have access to God in sin, Jesus became the penalty, the atonement. So the only way that we could live our lives is through the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man or God becoming flesh. So what happens is when Jesus, see, I don't know if this is how it happened, but I imagine you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You have God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. They knew what was to come. The three of them were up talking. Adam's going to mess all this up, man. Yeah, we know it's coming. Um, someone's got to pay the penalty for what he did. Yep. Someone ought to do that, huh? <laughs> and Jesus, because of his love for people, didn't hesitate. I'll be that one. Send me. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play this one out because I know what's going to happen on the other side. I know I'm going to have to suffer some ridicule for a while, but because I love people so much, because I want so much for these people, I'm willing to pay whatever price is necessary so that they can have access to what I have access to. The story of Christmas is not just a nativity scene. It's the story of God becoming man to giving us access to all that heaven has made available to us. Isn't that encouraging? There was a covenant keeper that gave you access. In return, Jesus wants you to make a covenant with him. I, I, my, my diplomatic side, I don't see that being that big of a, a deal when someone gives his life for you to say, hey, you know what, I owe you one. <laughs> and yet we try to live our lives apart from God. And it brings nothing. It brings no value. It brings no hope. It brings no fulfillment. It brings no satisfa satisfaction. It brings no... It, everything apart from God doesn't bring anything but temporary. You can go out and buy a new car, and it'll be great for a couple months. When, when you get that first ding on your car, you're like, ah, by the time the third or fourth ding comes along, the kids keep opening up the car doors into other car doors, you're just like, Whatever. Six months ago, that car was valuable to you. It was temporary. Man, my wife, she can go shopping. She can go shopping with the best of them. If anybody wants to go shopping, you go call her. She's down. It doesn't matter what she's doing. She'll stop it and say, let's go. She will fly back from out of town to go shopping with you. She loves to shop, but I've noticed she keeps having to keep going because it doesn't bring fulfillment. I'm not dogging shopping. Nothing wrong with that. Look at my Amazon. I, anybody, I should, I'm, about to, I'm about to confess sin. <laughs> so there's this little deal on Amazon that you can say how many orders that you've made. And you can do like the last 60 days, 90 days, or 2023 is now on there. 2022. 
I was going to stop right there, man. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I will say this. I have a, <laughs> there, how many days are in a year? 365? If you look on my little thing on how many orders you take, have, I will say this. God is my witness. I have one for every day of the year. <laughs> for 2023, you, I have 300, I lied, 356. I told Adrienne, I said, I'll get the other nine whenever you're, she's, she's leaving, going to tell you. I said, I'll get the other nine before you, before you get back. By the end of the year, 365 orders on Amazon. How much happiness has that brought me? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be real straight with you all. It brings a lot of happiness. I love buying stuff, but it wears off real fast. It doesn't bring anything that holds value in my life. There's only one thing that holds value in my life, and that's what Jesus did on the cross for my salvation. So what happens at Christmas time, we get so wrapped up in Amazon, we get so wrapped up in buying all these things. We gotta buy these presents. I want the perfect gift for Abigail to open up, for Matthew to open up, and sure enough, they're gonna have a lot of good things to open up, but it's going to bring temporary happiness. Just ask my mom who brought so many presents home, and I look at them, and be, hey, okay, and throw it to the side and move on to the the next one, temporary happiness. So don't get caught up in what we've made Christmas into presents and all the little Santa Claus. And I don't have anything wrong with all that, but I'm saying the only thing that will bring happiness is what Jesus has done for you and the atoning sacrifice of what the cross brought for your salvation. So remember this Christmas season, it's all about Jesus. Thank you for tuning in today. The most important decision you can make is making Jesus the Lord of your life. The Bible says that because we are born into sin, there needs to be a blood sacrifice to redeem us from the curse that that sin brought us into when we were all born. God wanted to give you the opportunity to live in eternity with him. So he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to be that blood sacrifice for you and I. You can choose to make Jesus the Lord of your life and choose heaven, or you can choose to make this sinful world we live in your standard of living and make hell the only option. If you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life, we want to give you that opportunity right now. All you have to do is repeat these words after me. Say this, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I confess my sins and I repent of those sins. I ask you to be the Lord of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me a fully devoted disciple. If you just prayed that prayer, then you are saved. Congratulations on making that life-changing decision. Now is the next step. You need to start reading your Bible and get into a good Bible-believing church. You will find other people who've made the same decision that you just did, and you will help each other grow to become all that God has called you to be. If you just prayed that prayer, I want you to know that I am praying for you, that I am for you, but I need to know about it. If you would go to pathwaychurchok.com, that is pathwaychurchok, just the letters O and K, dot com, Send us a message and let us know you prayed that prayer and we'll send you some free resources to help you start your journey with Christ that you just started today. 
Thank you again for tuning in. Congratulations once again. We'll see you next time right here.